0: To the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You wanna see pain? Look at these! Welcome to The Pain Pod. The podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the Pain Guy, Dr. Mark Groffoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important, focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city-like mountain man without the beard from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in Weapons of Mass Destruction Response. It's Dr. Mark Garofoli.
1: All right, welcome back everyone here in Pain Pod Nation. I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of everyone uh, tuned in or downloaded or listened to our most previous episode here on the Pain Pod uh, when we had thug drugs, cannabis, review of pretty much everything. Uh, that being said, it was succinct. It was as comprehensive as possible, I guess. Uh, but it you know, surface level as well, too, to really help uh, everyone in our communities and certainly us healthcare professionals and honing in on us pharmacists as well too. So here today though, this, this is where we go to the real meat and potatoes. We dive a tad bit deeper. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Kenneth Finn here, um, Dr. Ken Finn, internationally known, renowned um, in in the subjects of all things, cannabis, cannabinoids, pain management, and quite frankly, beyond as well too. So uh, Ken, I just wanted to welcome you here to our show in Pain Pod, and uh, hopefully your things are going well here. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the time and effort that you guys are putting into this. Absolutely, it's you know it's spreading uh, good knowledge. Um, you know, regardless of someone's personal facts, that's something my my uh, one sister-in-law uh, came up with. Maybe heard it elsewhere, but came up with for. Uh, Another word for opinions, right? Uh, here, um, you know, Pain Pod is on the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and everyone's pretty big on doing evidence-based podcasting or, you know, going over things that have uh, some reputation and references behind them, of course. So uh, you certainly, uh, Ken, in your career, uh, you, you've you done a lot in that regard and beyond. So, you know, for our audience here, for Pain Pod Nation, um, what's your story? What's, you know, general life, career?
2: Who's Ken? Well um I I'm I'm originally from the East Coast and I did my training in medical school in Houston, Texas and my residency in Utah and you know fell in love with the Rocky Mountains and have been living in Colorado Springs uh, since 1994 so coming up on 30 years um, practicing pain medicine in Colorado. so I this was not a career choice to become an expert in cannabis. Um, I didn't really intend to be an expert in this field. However, when Colorado legalized for medical purposes in 2000, when we voted on it and then implemented it in 2001, it was somewhat dormant for many years. And then after, you know, because there was no infrastructure, there were no dispensaries, there were no, uh, you know, physicians may have been reluctant to recommend use of cannabis in their patients. So there was really nothing going on for many years, but around 2009 in Colorado, after a lot of political maneuvering, the dispensaries opened up all over the state where even today, the number of marijuana dispensaries outnumber the total number of Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And we have a ton of dispensaries across the state. So as this program, you know continue to evolve i started to see patients coming to my practice that were on a very high dose of opioids which was a problem because this was when the opioid epidemic started to become in full swing and they were using marijuana for their pain and and their pain levels were high you know 8 9 10 out of 10 severe pain and so to me it really didn't make any clinical sense so i started reading and educating myself on cannabis. And when I would ask my patients, I said, okay, well, you have high levels of pain and you're using cannabis and you're using opioids. Nothing really seems to be helping with your pain. Let's have a discussion on maybe if you want to use marijuana, fine, let's taper your opioids. And that way we don't have to worry about you overdosing. And the vast majority of those patients were like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to taper my opioids. I said, well, you're using marijuana. It's, it, you know, it's this supposedly a good analgesic and an opioid substitute let's get you off your opioids. They said, well, marijuana really doesn't help me with my pain. So that was that was con- the conundrum that I started to see and why I wanted to educate myself in this space, because Colorado was one of the leaders uh, in the nation after California in the medical marijuana space. So that being said, I, I, after reading and, and having more open discussions with my patients, it, you know, from a clinical perspective, my own anecdotal experience it didn't seem to be effective and for many years i found like i was an army of one i'm like okay well that's been my experience and then we started i started having discussions with my colleagues locally and then statewide with the Colorado pain society and then internationally and over time my experience with my patients was very similar to my colleagues uh, that most of the patients not all of them but most of them the vast majority of them were not getting the pain relief that it is reported to be. And so, you know, concurrent with that were more data coming out initially saying that states with medical marijuana laws have lower opioid overdoses, et cetera. And then the pendulum began to swing in around 2018, where more data started coming using similar methodology. For example, uh, Chelsea Chauver and Keith Humphries from Stanford showed that states with medical marijuana laws actually had a nearly 23% higher incidence of opioid overdose. And so it, and it's it almost was, like we never saw those in the headlines, right? <laughs> it, it's... No, you don't see that in the headlines. Um, and, and that's kind of what you were saying about, uh, you know, personal experience or personal opinion. Uh, some people might call it confirmation bias in 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 other other avenues. But you know, the thing that concerned me is that public opinion was driving policy. And that's what made me somewhat concerned that, you know, everybody, the lay persons like, oh, it's a great pain medication, therefore the state has to change the laws. And they were not using the science base to guide policy change in the marijuana space. And that's why I became a vocal person in this space and to the point now You know, just a little background on myself, I'm I'm board certified in pain medicine, rehab medicine, pain management. Um, I'm actually certified in cannabis science with the University of Colorado from a couple years ago. Um, I'm president of the American Board of Pain Medicine. I've been on the exam council for over 20 years, and I served on our state's task force on Amendment 64, which legalized marijuana for recreational use. And I served four years on our state's Medical Marijuana Scientific Advisory Council, and I've been an invited speaker to the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs of Vienna. I've testified uh, in, in the Canadian Senate, the New York General Assembly, uh, and I speak with many states that are going down this road with the state legislators on the science base of cannabis as it relates to pain or at cannabis as a medicine. Um, I founded a nonprofit called Isaac, which is the International Academy on the Science and Impacts of Cannabis. And which is now a member of the Vienna NGO Committee on Drugs. We work with the UN on international drug policy issues. So I, I've become, not as, again, as a career choice, an expert in this field. And circling back to the the use of cannabis in pain, the, the data just simply is not there, despite the fact that I do believe there may be components of cannabis, the plant, that may have analgesic properties. So, because if you look at it from a basic science perspective, you know, and as it relates to opioids, for example, um, they they come from the same family of receptors, the G one protein coupled receptors. They modulate very similar neurotransmission in terms of pain pathways. Uh, so, and actually, naloxone has been shown to be effective, have an impact on the cannabinoid system, even though it's an opioid um, antidote for overdose. So. There's from a basic science perspective, there is evidence and I do believe and I support the fact that there may be analgesic properties to cannabinoids. The problem is that when you translate that into real world and the dispensaries and the products that are available, it doesn't seem to work. Um, You know, I think you are aware of the International Association for the Study of Pain a couple of years ago, came up with a conclusion. They scoured the literature. I mean, this is not, again, this is not confirmation bias. This is not my personal opinion. Um, I just find myself as a conduit of information based in science. And the IASP basically concluded that there's really no evidence that it's effective for chronic non-cancer pain. Um, And that's been supported by other international pain societies and other international researchers um, that basically conclude that it just isn't effective for pain. Uh, so it's kind of a, you know, in one way, it's kind of a bummer because, yeah, we would like something that would be safer for patients and not um, create overdoses and people stop breathing because the receptors don't live in the stem where respiration is, uh, but you know, people don't overdose from cannabis because of respiratory depression, but people can be poisoned and little children can actually die from cannabinoids because they don't metabolize uh the cannabinoids as well as the the older person so you know that th- those are my concerns and then you have this broad spectrum of product of you know from from you know a smoked 10 percent concentrate you know 10 percent thc joint to a 90 percent butane hash oil or a wax or shatter that is you know delivered via combustion and to me combusting something is not really a good delivery system for medicine. It, you There's a lot of good points that you brought up there, Ken, and kind of one big thing you said
1: there, um, there seems to be this thing out there with a lot of polarity in society and, well, everything, right? Um, but in this realm of cannabis, cannabinoids, so on and so forth, CBD, THC, the, the whole gamut, um, there, there seems to be this, you have to be on one side or the other, And what you mentioned there was the, oh, when things were shown not to work, it was kind of a bummer. Uh, It's, you know... um... It's a short quote, I guess, but um, it really brings to light the, it, it. a lot of clinicians, a lot of healthcare professionals want things to work, but you have to go by what the evidence is, right? Um, now, you mentioned that um, the IASP uh, task force report, Um I'll certainly include that in our show notes for everybody as well. It's from not that long ago, it's from 2021, um, and, you know, really big picture there. Um, something even uh, came out before that, uh, well, by golly, you're in charge of, Ken, so- You're also, uh, I believe, you didn't mention it, but editor um, of Cannabis and Medicine: An Evidence Based Approach. Um, I believe the most recent rendition was from 2020. So you know that's the that's when somebody says, "Oh, well, you wrote the book on it." Obviously, it takes a team, but you're in charge. So, um, what what can you tell us about that? uh, Whether uh, what's included or just the adventure within?
2: (laughs) Oh goodness, yeah, uh, editing a medical textbook was a A very interesting process. I don't think I would do it again. And I I do have very high respect for people that edit. So, I mean, I had 70 authors from four countries and 20 chapters. And I think at the end of the day, what I took away from this deep dive into cannabis, kind of more from a bird's eye view, is that the debate really transcends by far the debate on whether or not it's an analgesic or opioid substitute because it touches virtually every aspect of medicine from emergency medicine to psychology psychiatry to neurology to pediatrics to geriatrics to driving impairment i mean it cardiac i mean it's it's a really broad impact and i think that's what people don't really understand, especially when I talk to our colleagues in medicine or pharmacy or what have you, is that really isn't just a debate on whether or not it's a good pain medication or or opioid substitute or an analgesic. Um, And I think most people would support the development of of cannabis-based medications. Dispensary cannabis has never been studied. It hasn't been proven. Uh, It's made up of hundreds of different components. And so I don't believe and I don't support the use of dispensary cannabis for any medical condition. For example, the people that assisted in getting CBD through the FDA and was able to get Epidiolex FDA approved, which is a plant-based purified cannabidiol, uh, from University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, Jersey Slavarski and Tyler Gaston, they wrote my chapter in seizure, which was a very well done, very detailed um, pharmacological uh, description on the use of CBD in pediatric seizures. So I think most uh, providers would support cannabis-based medications. Uh, but the problem is that dispensary cannabis doesn't meet the diagnosis of a medicine because of its poor testing, poor regulation, frequent contamination, um, and broad variance in potency. I mean, there's no package insert for dispensary cannabis. Uh, There are no warnings and precautions. And even in CBD, if you go to the Epidiolex website and you look at warnings and precautions, um, there are... Uh, warnings on liver impact, you know, um, suicidality, and behavior, and sedation. I mean, those are the three top warnings in the package insert on Epidiolex, which is purified CBD. And interestingly, I had a conversation with a patient just earlier this week on CBD. He was a a young man, professional, um, twenty year user of cannabis, for and he he got his a medical marijuana card in Colorado before he was eighteen, so his mother had to sign for him um, so he was a chronic user for an abdominal issue and uh, you know he wanted he presented to me on opioids and I had this discussion with a typical discussion and he said that the cannabis really wasn't helping his pain and he weaned off the cannabis after 20 years and he actually felt better interestingly. And so he's a smart young man and and he and I went to the Epidiolex website and Interestingly, the 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 data um, changes all the time, and recently, so he and I went to the EpidiLex website, and we looked at um, or Drugs.com actually, and we went to look at drug interactions. And people don't understand that there are hundreds of drug interactions, and it changes all the time. Um, The most recent data shows that there are five hundred and eighty-five drug interactions. Um, and most people think, you know, when I ask the question to the audience, they say, well, I don't know, maybe 10, 20. No, five hundred and <laughs> five. And so it really is
1: increasing. I think a couple months ago, I, I saw that it was in order to be like five seventy something. Not that 10 yeah, is a lot, but
2: it was five hundred seventy six about two months ago. And so I went uh, there. On we order, go, Yeah. And I'm on right now at drugs dot com. And there's five hundred eighty five drugs that can interact with cannabidiol. And most of them are or a lot of them are very common medications like ibuprofen, uh, even acetaminophen. And so when I have an older person, for example, coming in saying, hey, I wanna try the CBD for my arthritis. I said, well, let's look at the medications you're on. And many of them, because they have arthritis are taking anti-inflammatories. And if you look at the interaction on drugs.com with cannabidiol and you put ibuprofen in, it's a moderate interaction, can impact liver function, et cetera. So um, most patients and most, actually most providers uh, which is more concerning. Don't even understand the number of interactions with their patients. And in the world of pain, it has actually a major interaction with buprenorphine, which is the the medication we use for opioid for medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, and yeah, I'm just googling that right now. Buprenorphine with cannabidiol. Uh, with a major interaction, can cause central nervous system depression, uh, respiratory distress, distress, coma, and even death. So don't tell, don't let people tell you marijuana has never killed anybody because it does have its the potential to do that. Uh, and you know, in patients that are on chronic opioids, that may be switching to a buprenorphine type of medication, butrans or belbuca or what have you, and they want to use CBD. You have to have these conversations with your patients. Because it can put them at risk. And actually, because of my experience, I recently published a paper on having these conversations with your patients, because it's important for providers to do that. Because, you know, not that I want to scare anybody, but the lawsuits are already starting against providers. You know, we don't want to go after our own. We kind of, it's kind of the unspoken code in the world of medicine. You don't want to tattle on your colleague, for example. Uh, but the fact that most providers don't know or don't understand cannabinoids in detail, even superficially, they get no training in it. Uh, it may put them at risk for a lawsuit if they have an adverse event. Um, and and know, that's really important to
1: keep in mind too. Um, I, I definitely have to share that that article. Um, Sending that this way, <laughs> uh, to, you know, to help uh, all healthcare professionals really along the way and. You, know, you brought up the, the idea there with the drug interactions. And um I, I think we've both been on stages everywhere talking about the, the hundreds of them. And then, you know, the important thing is also realizing that, you know, websites like you mentioned, our patients can very easily go to, of course, and have that information, but it's really whittling it down. You know, what's the clinical significance here and there? And like like any other drug drug interaction that's our job, um, especially in pharmacy. I mean, that, that's one right. of our wheelhouses, right? Um, so, you know, when folks are trying to look those things up, um, they, even utilizing the online databases that we use for typical drug drug interaction checks, um, you, more often than not, you could actually even type in cannabis or cannabinoids or CBD or THC. But if you can't, then you just pull up one of the cannabis-based medications that are FDA approved, your dronabinol, your Epidiolex, so right. on and so forth, and you could utilize those. It, it's... Um, a lot of clinicians will get extra comfort from utilizing the, you know, the, the same processes that everybody's used to, um, you know, you, uh, being a cannabis based medication. I mean, good golly, we've had FDA approved cannabinoids for decades now. Like that, that, that's, uh, just because something is FDA approved doesn't mean that every licensed healthcare professional out there is going to be on board with something, but, um, That's nothing new. That's been around. Uh, There's certainly many, or at least multiple, more studies coming for phase three for various cannabinoids and various conditions. Uh, So we shall see. Um, That's the that's the first arm. The other arm, of course, is what many would refer to as medical cannabis or medical marijuana, or you know, the thing uh, in the buildings that, quite frankly, typically look beautiful or at least have neon signs or wavy flags or. Whatever um, you know, dispensaries and any other types of stores, um, uh, so on and so forth. With that, um, wh- uh, you mentioned the uh, you know patient having a, a medical marijuana card. What um, how, how hard is it to attain one of those? What, what what's some uh, observations and experiences there?
2: Well, before I get to that, I just want to circle back one one last time sure. to uh, uh, cannabis based medicine like dronabinol, mm-hmm. and you know I to this on drugs.com, I've been there before. Um, and it's interesting because the starting dose of dronabinol, which is synthetic THC, is 2.5 milligrams, and and for some reason the standard dose of uh, medical marijuana is 10 milligrams. So it's you know four times the starting dose of dronabinol. Um, and if you look at dronabinol, that does have a package insert, and they have warnings and precautions. It's and the first thing it says. Dronabinol may cause new or worsening psychosis, especially if you've had depression or mental illness. And people fight me all the time and do not believe that cannabis psychosis is a real thing. I'm
1: picturing you sitting at the table with the sign. I don't know how many uh, listeners have seen this online, but the guy sitting at the table with the sign, it says, this is a possible side effect. Prove me wrong. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah, exactly. Prove me wrong. And, you know, you have the the science base with dronabinol, which is a synthetic THC. It's been around for decades, as you know, as you mentioned. Um, but, you know, there was a recent Wall Street Journal article regarding teens that are using marijuana are, are having more episodes of psychosis. And people fight this thing all the time. And when you have a cannabis-based medication that the first Thing it says on warnings is it can cause new or worsening psychosis. And then it has a laundry list of things. you know, if you have uh, don't use it if you had uh, epilepsy, don't heart problems, uh, drug addiction, depression, mental illness, psychosis. So that was kind of the impetus of, of one of the reasons I, I I published this article on how to have conversations with patients, not because we're going to chastise them or judge them because they're of their use. But as providers, we have to educate them and I, we did our job. So if we tell a patient, for example, that has a history of three heart attacks, they have AFib, they're on blood thinners, and they've been stented three times, that might be the person you don't want to use cannabis, uh, particularly CBD, because CBD has a very severe interaction with Coumadin or, uh, or Warfarin uh, as a blood thinner. I mean, I, I had a patient that had an INR of 7.8 um, because he was using CBD in combination with his warfarin. Uh, I've never People seen often that. ask
1: what, which one, uh, what are the drug, drug interactions that are clinically significant? Well, there you go. Right.
2: That's one of them. That's a huge one. Puprenorphine is another one. You can just go look and see what the major interactions are on that. So I just wanted to uh, get that point across.
1: Absolutely. Yep. You know, now that we were discussing the cannabis-based medications, the FDA-approved products, basically for in our country, anyway, uh, then there's of course medical cannabis, medical marijuana, all the dispensary things, and you know, uh, in various states needing the the medical marijuana card, um, and then you know, just talking about the experience, I guess, uh, from from you know what patients are telling you or whatever you've observed there of you know how hard is it to get the card or a card, I should say, um, so on and so forth.
2: Oh, it's terribly easy. Um, I, I don't know if you knew, but just as a as a sidebar, I was curious what it what it did take to get a medical marijuana card in the state of Colorado. So, I played collegiate soccer. I blew my knees out. I've had five knee surgeries. My ortho said I need my knees replaced. So I'm ignoring that right now. So, I went to uh, an online uh, medical marijuana evaluation, if you want to call it that. I paid 250 bucks. The time slot was for 15 minutes. Um, I was approved in 60 seconds. Uh, there was no question. This is a physician. There was no questioning of what have I tried and failed? What's my history of my knees? What have I, if I had any physical therapy, Have I tried any anti-inflammatories or, uh, you know, topical, you know, lidocaine creams or Voltaire and no questioning. Uh, didn't even want to know um, records from my orthopedic surgeon. Didn't want to look at my, never looked at my MRI, never asked if I had an MRI. And interestingly, never asked me what my level of pain was. And regarding my knees, my level of pain is, you know, it's a subjective score, obviously, but zero to two or three on a 10 scale, depending on my. Sounds activity. like you need a
1: half a baby aspirin, right? <laughs>
2: yeah i i take i take ibuprofen for my knees maybe once or twice a month i might take a celebrex once twice a month but so my level of pain is low mild pain but Mm -hmm. i was approved for severe pain in about a minute so 60
1: seconds and 250 bucks from other stories i've heard you might have got ripped off i don't know (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> i i think um, you know i did i did it i think it was money well spent because i i really wanted to know what it was like to go through that experience right right and and sharing you know, that uh you know to your
1: to your your comment earlier of the uh i don't know if you know um well like i knew but i'm a pharmacist i like to ask questions i know the answer to so it's all good um but yeah that, that's because- uh I've even heard reports of, you know, folks having uh, signups and laptops ready, you know, right on the spot. Um, And, and, you know, this idea of, oh, it's only approved for certain conditions. And then, you know, your story. I I, I mean, there's a reality out there. There, There's a ship. It's in the ocean. uh, Court of public opinion. That ship's been out there. It sailed a while ago uh, compared to everything, you know, being discussed along the way. But to your point, you know that article you talked about of how to have these conversations as as clinicians. Quite frankly, that's pivotal because uh, regardless of what anybody thinks or has read or does, whatever, our patients make their decisions. You know, it's a shared decision process, but they're driving the the bus, right? Uh, so it it's Correct. it's incredibly important to have those conversations. That's the big picture there. Yes, looking at side effects, interactions, utility, safety, efficacy, all of that. Um, yeah, you know, speaking of uh, well, safety and efficacy, I, I I think a lot of people. I uh, know I shared on LinkedIn and PainGuy.us and all that as well too. But um, back in uh, the late fall of 2023, October of 2023, a Journal of Pain had uh, uh, published an article that, well, it, it it got a lot of. I think I got a lot of hits or reads or whatever we want to call it. But let me just read the title: CBD for pain, ineffective, expensive, and with potential harms. I mean, that title reverberates, right? It's uh, in a nutshell, um, you know, no journal club here, but basically they reviewed um, 16 different uh, randomized controlled trials that were utilizing various CBD formulations, you know, uh, whether it was oral, topical, buccal, sublingual, so on and so forth. So different formulations, dosage range was all over the place between... Uh, from what I saw, six to sixteen hundred milligrams, so literally all over the place. Uh, durations comparing, uh, you know, through the range of once to, to for twelve weeks, you know, so three three months or so. Uh, bottom line was, fifteen of the sixteen studies that they reviewed showed no benefit of CBD over placebo. So what? Um, I, I, I mean, you're the go-to. It, it's I, I think I said it earlier, you wrote the book, right? Um, <laughs> Pros and cons of uh, article or thoughts, just general thoughts. Where 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 sh- where could our minds be at with that?
2: You know, I think it was a very well done um, and kind of sh- pierced the veil of of you know the CBD for pain. And I've I've actually communicated with Andrew Moore, who was the the primary author on this. And mm-hmm. you know, he's done some very good work uh, overall. He's a, a researcher, and not only CBD but other cannabinoids have been also came to the same conclusion that it's really no better than placebo as it relates to pain. So despite the fact, again, I'm going to circle back to the basic science, there are potential anti-inflammatory components of CBD. Um, you know, it doesn't really work directly on the CB1 or the CB2 receptor. It kind of indirectly modulates those receptors in the pain pathways from a basic science perspective. But again, translating that to real life and products that people are buying and consumers that are purchasing these very expensive products, uh, by the way, uh, aren't getting the benefit that it's touted that they're going to get. And so a lot of them, you know, my clinical experience, my anecdotal experience, the patients are somewhat disappointed uh, because they spend a lot of money on something that doesn't do what the the public opinion says it's going to do. And that's what really frustrates me to no end is the fact that, you know, it's touted as this big, you know, savior Of our opioid crisis, and you know, on that side side note, there is that um, I was a author, co-author on a paper, and we have another paper coming paper coming out uh, in the near future that fentanyl death rates are actually higher in marijuana states versus non-marijuana states. So, you know, what what's going on there? I mean, you know, our overdose crisis is complex. It's not simple. It's not just related to marijuana. I mean, there's other factors that are contributing to our overdose crisis. However, a lot of these drugs tend to play well in the sandbox. And most states that are seeing higher fentanyl death rates are also seeing higher death rates with stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine. So these substances, these centrally acting substances tend to play very well in the sandbox together. And Marijuana, uh, you know, being perceived as very benign to me is always the the schoolgirl at the dance that nobody's going to ask to dance. She's always there, um, but no one really pays attention to her. That's that's kind of the best analogy I can come up with. It's the it's the person. It's the little girl at the dance with her hair done and her bow in. She looks cute and everything, and appears so benign, but she seems to be everywhere at the dance when it comes to overdoses you know, include is it a companion drug? Is it a, it's probably not a primary factor in somebody passing away. Um, however, most people that, for example, that use heroin on a regular basis didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to use heroin. Uh, they usually start with the, You know, booze and pot are the the gateway drugs, although people are going to not like that I use that term because it's a a very, um, you know, it's a sensitive term. Uh, It's up for debate. Uh, But the fact of the matter, if you talk to a heroin addict, if they've ever used marijuana before they use heroin, the vast majority of them, they're going to say, yes, they did. Um, But again, it just seems to be uh, a factor. And Colorado, for example, that's been monitoring our overdose deaths over time is actually seeing an increase in cannabinoids being positive in our overdose crisis here in the state of Colorado. And again, people aren't dying from from marijuana use, but is it a companion drug? Um, the The coron- it's, it's complex because the coroners aren't trying to differentiate between uh, synthetic cannabinoids and looking for the cathinones, which are the, the, the metabolites of the synthetic THCs, or are they looking for, you know, um, 11-hydroxy or carboxy THC? It's just a blanket cannabinoid. So the, the devil's in the details and we just don't know. Um, but on that note, marijuana now was the most prevalent substance found in completed teen suicide in Colorado. Nearly 43% of teens that complete suicide are positive for marijuana. Um, and it, that trend con- just continues to rise every year. I've been monitoring it for the past 10 years. It used to be alcohol. Um, and then marijuana took first place around. And interestingly, when we voted to legalize for recreational use, then it became number one uh, by a, a slim margin to alcohol. And now uh, marijuana positivity and completed teen suicide is 43% and mar- and alcohol is only like 17 or 18%. So yeah, it's more access, 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 right? It, it, it's uh, well, it's probably bi-directional. I mean, people are, yeah. children, adolescents aren't overdosing on marijuana, uh, but the question is, are they using because they're depressed or are they depressed because they're using? And I think it's probably both to some degree. Um, most of these kids have had, you know, mental health issues, uh, you know, it's a chicken and egg scenario. We just yeah, don't know. It's um
1: Heck, in pain and exercise, we have in, uh like in a different realm, I remember um, uh, learning of, of you know, perhaps it was one study, but it seemed like it was across the board of uh, chicken or the egg with sleep and pain. You know, does pain yeah. cause more lack of sleep or does lack of sleep cause more pain? From what yeah. I've seen, it's usually the latter, but um, it's not what always, you know, everyone always thinks. But, you know, a, a lot of review there uh, from what you're saying of just, you know, a lot of things in society. So let's kick it up a notch. and um you know, with regulations. So controlled substance class three that that's the the headliner these days, uh, as far as you know, um, whether it's cannabis, specific cannabinoids. It, it, what's your thoughts with that type of movement?
2: Um, I think it's I'm concerned on uh, this rescheduling issue for many reasons because raw cannabis, I think should remain in C1, uh, because it is known to cause harm. Uh, it is known to be a, a substance of abuse, especially in the day and age of high potency. And I think the FDA and HHS really didn't do... I mean, I don't know if you read the report. It's a 500-page report. It's huge. Not the uh, whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I glanced over. It. I mean, I think they did take a good stab at at rationalizing why they came to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it set a very dangerous precedent. And I think there's actually, I have more questions now that they wanna do it. Who's gonna oversee uh, cannabis? Now that FDA wants it in a C3 category, who's gonna gonna oversee that? Who's gonna monitor contaminants? Who's gonna create the package insert for a 95% wax or shatter? Um, you know, is it going to have to come through a pharmacy window now? Uh, I mean, it, it's. I think it's going to shake the tree uh, regarding. You know, how are we going to handle this now? If that, if that's the road we go down, I have so many questions as to how they're going to manage it. Yeah, you know, it's the, the,
1: re- the process that really comes out to it's, you know, is it including the the raw, the, the plant? Is it just saying specific cannabinoids then? Is it just a shift of, you know, the cannabis-based medications the FDA currently approved products and those in phase three and beyond? It's, you know, you say shake the tree. It's like, well, there's only so many berries and leaves that fall and we're left still with more questions then. Like, um, I, I threw this out there one time of saying, okay, well, you know, who's in charge still then? Um, Controlled substance? Is it DEA? Is it whatever um you know we have um, we have ATF out there you know hey maybe give uh, firearms their own organization and then have uh, cannabis all called tobacco if if we were you know as a country to go down the route of you know various changes for regulation it it's there's just so many questions it, it this isn't something that ends within a year or a decade even for that no. so, um, well I think there's so, so, have so have many questions, questions. So, to
2: weigh in yeah. on it yeah, I, I think the yeah. DMJ has really come to a conclusion. I don't think the DEA has weighed in yet. Um, I think AMA has not weighed in yet. Uh, I, I think a lot of people do look to the AMA for guidance in things like this. And uh, I'm very concerned if they move it to a C3 um, because we don't know. I mean, look at all the contamination that we have and the, and the lab testing. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the the flaws in the lab testing, I think there was an article that came out that I think it was a third of the labs in California were not testing correctly. And I think they stopped testing, if I remember correctly, in the state of California because the labs are a mess. Um, there, a few years ago, one of the lab directors in Sacramento was actually caught purposely faking the test results of a product that is now or may be considered an actual medication. We've had products in Colorado that have had arsenic in them. We've had products with other heavy metals like cadmium. We frequently have recalls on products that have fungus. A patient in California died several years ago at UC Davis because he opted for his medical marijuana product that was contaminated with with aspergillus And he was immunocompromised for his cancer treatment, and then he died from the fulminant fungal infection because he couldn't fight it. Uh, So the cancer didn't kill the cancer patient. The contaminant. is not on the label, right? It's not on the label, and and it happens. We have at least one call recall a week in the state of Colorado for something. And and the the problem I have with I have a big problem with it is that those products have already been consumed, so the Mm -hmm. harm is already done because by the time the recall comes out they say okay it's january 19th so send return your product from uh, september through november of 2023 well i'm sorry folks but that product is already gone consumed back to the whatever.
1: sewer management system right
2: <laughs> exactly
1: Aye. Uh, um, well, there's there's clearly a lot going on in any conversation. Now, hopefully, we weren't too circular here today, like so many of these conversations go. But no matter what, we all end with with more questions out there too. So, um, one or two things. I just want to uh, wrap up here with you, Ken. Um, and as I'm sure you know, I ask every pain podcast, but um, in the realm of pain management, honing in here because the overall talk uh, here today was with that. Um, what's your favorite pain medication? And I'll add in other than CBD, right? Smiley face intended. Right.
2: <laughs> um, my favorite pain medication is buprenorphine. Um, you know, I think it has you know lower risk of overdose. I mean, it is kind of the where we are gravitating to in the world of pain in terms of managing patients with chronic pain disorders. Um I try to see from the brand name Oxycontin. I, you know, in in my world of pain. Uh, we are monitoring every patient that's on an opioid. I mean, it is a diff- can be a difficult conversation to discuss tapering or medication rotation, especially if they land on my doorstep and they've been on oxycodone or hydrocodone or hydromorphone or morphine for 20 years. Uh, that can be a very difficult conversation to have, and and it it is kind of uh, pushing a, a a boulder up a hill. Uh, sometimes with these chronic pain patients, my favorite medication though, is buprenorphine because I think it's a safer alternative to things like morphine uh, or oxycodone.
1: Well, thank you. And yeah, you know, kind of going backwards, I guess. Um, you know, we uh, we mentioned a bunch of organizations here today and articles as well, but uh, IASP was one of them, and uh, they certainly have a, a a definition of pain that's really available out there. Gets updated every couple of years. Um, but how would you define
2: pain? well pain I, we all know is a subjective experience i mean um you know a a splinter on one person you know may say oh, that hurt and the other person might be crying and you know very dramatic uh, but it really is a subjective experience and so it's really hard to you know try to leave i leave my i try to leave my biases at the door when i see somebody in pain or a pain patient um because i don't know what their experience is something that i may consider somewhat you know, minimal or marginal might be huge in that particular patient. So you have to you have to talk to the patient openly about their experience and how they're handling it. I mean, there's definitely a psychological component to pain because it is an experience. Um, and some people handle it better than others. And the ones that are not handling it very well, we do like to bring in psychological support, which is a whole other discussion because it is uh, poorly – you know, it's not authorized by insurance companies. They don't pay for it. They, you know, so it's it's sorely lacking in the chronic pain world in terms of the psychological component of uh, pain and pain experience. You know, uh, CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very helpful in in helping patients deal and manage what they have. Um, it's not going to get rid of what they have, but it may help them learn how to deal with what they have better. And I think the psychological component and the experiential component of pain from a patient perspective is is really lacking in our comprehensive uh, pain management. Um, And I think it's very important that it's multifactorial, the the experience of pain, there's a physical component, there's an emotional component. Uh, Some people may say there's a spiritual component. Uh, But I think all of that has to be addressed uh, when you're trying to manage these pains and and patients. And, you know, part of the armamentarium is medications. I mean, it's it's kind of what our our go-to sometimes is, but not, you know, the data is pretty clear that chronic opioids doesn't really do much either, like in the world of pain, but a lot of patients are using them. And I have a fair number of them in my practice that are functioning just fine. And we try to taper and we test the waters periodically and they don't like that how they feel. And we you know, we have to go through that battleground on, you know, why are you not, you know, if you're taking two, five milligram hydrocodone a day for 15 years, well, let's go to one and then maybe half and then zero and taper. They don't want to do that. And you have to have this discussion with them. It's like, why are you so dependent on, you know, there's a behavioral component to it. There's a, there's all those things that have to be discussed. Uh, so pain is, is very complex. It's not, well, I yep. heard... Help me fix me or whatever, and and a lot, and that, a lot of that is we have to put that onus on the patients. And I I, I work with some of my mid level providers, um, they or the the APPs that I'm working with, they take that burden on themselves. And I and I've over the years of being old and experienced, <laughs> I've learned not to not to get too emotionally involved in the patients. Although I have a lot of patients I've been taking care of for over 20 years, I know them, I know their kids and their grandkids, um, but That being said, the patient's pain problem is their pain problem, and you are there as the provider to try to help them get through their pain problem and manage their pain problem. But their pain problem isn't my pain problem, so I have to leave that at work, and I don't bring it home. And I think a lot of people get really emotionally tied up in their pain patients, um, especially some of the the more empathic younger APPs that I've been working with, the NPs and the PAs. uh, They get very emotionally tied to these patients for some reason, and I don't know why, but I, I have to try to have that discussion with how you kind of draw the line, and you have to be empathic, and you have to be sympathetic for the patients, and you have to do the best you can, but at the end of the day, if they get mad at you, say, why am I not better, and say, well, you know, we're just here to help. We're doing the best we can, and at the end of the day, your, you know, discarniation is your discarniation, not mine. I mean, I know that sounds, it may, may sound callous, but I think that the, that's what it is.
1: It's, uh, you know, in a nutshell, it's uh, you mentioned empathy that starts with E. Another one is easy and pain is not easy. Um, no. You know, I once had a slide. I don't, I don't remember the conference it was probably pain week or something where I, I just simply put in a slide. I said the E in pharmacy stands for easy. Uh, I'm going to update that the E in pain stands for easy. It just isn't there. So, um, right. Well, Dr. Finn, thank you. Thank you very much um, along the way here for our conversation uh, today. Uh, I hope everyone in our our pain pod nation here has appreciated your time. It's our most valuable resource, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So, thank you very much and certainly wish you well on the many professional endeavors ahead for you.
2: Thank you, Mark. And again, I appreciate the time. And this is only, we've only scratched the surface. Absolutely.
1: It's, Hours upon hours would still scratch the surface. <laughs> um, well, Pain Pod Nation, thank you very much for your time and listening as well, too. And uh, until the next episode, as always, I wish you a great day every
0: day. If you'd like to join Mark on the Pain Pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.